that last part of uh, St. Francis's prayer about in dying, we receive eternal life. This is more than an afterlife thing. Uh, this is a uh, perennial tradition thing. Because eternal life, as Jesus talked about, it wasn't simply heaven to come, but it was the experience of God now in this present life. Uh, the words kingdom of God are not a thing to come in the distant future. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here among us now. And Jesus said the commonwealth, divine commonwealth, which is another way to think about kingdom of God that's a little more palatable for us, uh, is here now. And the way we get to that eternal life, the heaven part, is death. And these bodies give up. But the way to get there now, before we die, is to give ourselves to the way of Jesus. And that's how we make sense of the text that Lauren spoke earlier about came to bring a sword, not peace. Because the way of Jesus is counterintuitive and countercultural to this day. Jesus is saying, and he's using hyper, hyperbolic language here, exaggerated language. He's saying in that text that we're going to work into and work out of today, he's saying that the way that I'm trying to tell you, the way that I've found that is based in understanding God as loving Abba is, is the way that leads to life and truth. It's the way of God, is the way of walking in the Spirit. And it's different than the way of the world. It's different than our lizard brains will have us go. And so when you start doing it and believing it, it's going to cause some rifts, in, even in your family, because everybody else in the world is still operating from a different operating system. But just trust me, Jesus says, this is the way, the truth, and the life. The interesting paradox is, is that when we actually give ourselves fully to the way of Jesus, which St. Francis caught and was on it himself. When we find ourselves in that way, the parents, our children, our loved ones, we find out that we are able to love them more, not less. The question is, what is our primary love in life? Is it God? Is it the way of God? Trusting that that way leads to life everlasting. It's why Jesus said, you nailed these two rules you're going to fulfill the rest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the way. So today, um, if we can take a look at my slides, Trudy, there was a musical that I got the pleasure of being in here in Napa uh, many years ago, 17 years ago. Uh, Napa High School put it on, Sharon Rogers, uh, you know, retired from the position of director of drama things at uh, Napa High. And for her master's project, uh, she uh, had to craft a different kind of musical that year. So she brought in community members, uh, lots of us. Uh, I was Emile de Beck, the Frenchman, uh, and got one of the male leads in the show. And there were many other community members, and it was just a blast to do. Uh, it was a fun show. I think we did a pretty good job uh, with it. Uh, it's a very popular musical. Uh, it's been put on the screen multiple, bleh, multiple times over the years. 
Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a love story. So people love love stories uh, between Emile de Beck, some enchanted evening, all that stuff. And uh, Nelly, you know, the love interest in the story. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. Those, those songs, really popular show tunes from this thing. And there's another love story that also happens with an officer. The story takes place during World War II in the South Pacific at an island, and they're waiting. Uh, many, many troops are waiting to go into battle, and they're bored to death. So they're trying to keep themselves entertained, not going insane. One of the captains, <clears throat> who's another significant role, his name's Cable. Uh, he's a captain, and he goes over to Bali High. Bali High, it calls it. All right. And so he goes over there uh, because that's where, the, that's where the party scene's happening. And uh, one of the um, proprietors of the party scene has a special daughter that she wanted Cable to meet and sets him up with this woman, and they have this romantic affair for some period of time. And I think they fall in love with each other. And of course, the mother of this young woman is thinking, this is our ticket out. This is our ticket to the United States. Our, we're out of here. Our future is set. But Cable knew that where he came from, and he, he came from the United States, and he knew that that probably wasn't going to go over too well with his parents to bring home an Islander. And so he broke it off with her. It broke his heart. Nellie, the other love story, she loved Emile de Beck. Even though he was a widower and older, uh, she was okay with that until she met his children, who were young, mixed-race Islander kids. And then she couldn't see herself taking those kids back to Kansas, where she came from. Cable, in the story, was so heartbroken that he sings this song called Carefully Taught. And I want to read the, uh, the script for you before you get to hear a rendition of it. James Taylor actually uh, picked this up and did a beautiful job with it. These this are the lyrics that you're going to hear. It says, you've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late, before you are six or seven or eight, to hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. Play the next one for me, Trudy.
So this week we're continuing the series, Do I Stay Christian, based on Brian McLaren's book, Loosely. I borrow a lot from him. You'll see a lot of stats and some timeline stuff from him uh, today. Um, you know, last week we looked at divine violence in the Old Testament and tried to get our heads around how do we make sense of what seems to be a radical shift from a very violent God, uh, over a thousand verses attributed to divine violence, over 100 verses where God seems to be commanding violence or at least condoning very explicitly violence. How do we make sense of that? And then all of a sudden this radical shift to Jesus calling God Abba. And what we gave you last week was a tool to think about that uh, from a scholar on the subject. And he reminded us, which we've been teaching this around here for a long time, uh, that while the Bible is a book about God, about a journey of God that spans many thousands of years from different people and different voices, it is nonetheless uh, made by human hands. And while the human hands and pens and brains that helped give us the Bible were deeply um, passionate and spiritual people and wanted to do the very best they could to reflect uh, their experience and the God that they knew, their humanity still comes through. We see their prejudices, prejudices and biases throughout. And that's okay. It actually makes the Bible much more accessible and real. I would submit to you that the same reality exists in the New Testament, that you have these biographies of Jesus, that which were written decades after his ministry, and we get clear glimpses of Jesus talking about God as Abba and all this unconditional love, wonderful, gooey, Hallmark Channel kind of stuff, right? But even in the Gospels, you see some creep go toward lizard brain mentality. And some of the other letters, the later letters in the New Testament, you see the same thing creep in. And the reason why is because the original disciples thought that like next Tuesday, Jesus is coming back and is going to restore everything and make it all better. And when days turned to months, turned to years, turned to decades, they very naturally started to go back into a Jewish apocalyptic worldview, which is, oh, maybe we misunderstood. And of course, nobody was alive by then that was alive with Jesus. And so you had nobody to say, wait, 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 slow down. This is incongruent with Abba. So what that means is even when we look at the New Testament, just like we do with the old, we recognize it means we have to think. It means we have to do a little study to take a look at the text that we're looking and help determine where are the fingerprints of culture uh, so strong and obvious and where is the gentle spirit of God, which does flow through the entire Bible from Genesis through Revelation? Because both are there, wheat and weeds. That's part of our scholastic challenge to do that. It's not taking anything away. It strengthens the Bible, to be honest, about this stuff. One of the other things that is challenging uh, for us uh, and challenging for people who are considering walking away from the faith entirely is that Christianity itself, uh, as... Uh, as Mahatma Gandhi pointed out, and I shared the quote with you, uh, has not been so like Jesus historically. In fact, we have been responsible for untold violence in the world. And we just want to walk through that a little bit today. So on the next slide, we have a very brief highlighted timeline of Christian violence. And the reason we start at 613 is because it starts with Muhammad. In 613, Muhammad receives a, what he calls a revelation from God. And it, it's actually a period of, of experiences that he had, which scribes wrote down as best they could. It's still coming through Muhammad. Now, this could get me in trouble in Muslim circles, but 
We're not in Muslim circles right here, right now. Uh, I would suggest that Muhammad himself is still a vehicle, a human vehicle. And so what he's understanding uh, to be God coming through him, he's honest, and it's what he's believing and what he's hearing, but it's still going to be by necessity a mixed bag because it's a human being being the conduit of whatever God is trying to communicate through him. Does that make sense? And so we have, we have the Quran that has come before us, which I've read, and uh, it doesn't read a whole lot different than the Bible, especially Old Testament uh, passages. There are some beautiful things that the Quran says, and there are some not so beautiful things, just like the Bible. Well, 130 some years later, Muhammad is designated as a heretic. Uh, that is not a good thing to be called a heretic back in that day and age. Um, McLaren goes into pretty good detail about what that actually means. And he doesn't give it to you in the chapter, because it's too disturbing. You have to go to the appendix to see what kind of torturous uh, activity happened to those who are called a heretic, meted out by the church itself. Inhumane, stuff that the Geneva Convention would never even consider, uh, and often ended up in people just flat out dying. Pretty strong uh, defense mechanism, right? To keep your mouth shut, to toe the line, uh, keep going forward, keep your head low. Is it any wonder <laughs> why when new ideas came forth, it took a long time for those ideas to make their way? It's because there was a price to pay if you did it. In 1093, Pope Urban launched the first of five crusades against Muslims, and they brought with them a fourfold approach of convert, so you either convert to the Christian faith, leave, meaning get out of our way, submit, meaning become a slave to us, you'll be a second-class citizen from here, henceforth, or just die. And the crusaders uh, were very happy to help them with any of these things, including the death one, which just simplified everything for everyone. You don't have to worry about them regressing when they're dead. And we know that some Muslims were taken literally to the seashores where they were encouraged to convert to Christianity and get baptized. And as soon as they came up out of the water, were run through with a sword, lest they go back to their pagan ways. This is part of Christian history. What's more, the papacy, the Pope, uh, the Catholic Church, uh, told those warriors, those crusaders, many of those were from very poor peasant class who <laughs> had little hope of gaining any attention from God. They were told that if they went on this mission to wipe out the Muslims in their crusade, it was a free ticket to heaven. Talk about incentive. Christians have a lot of blood on their hands. It didn't stop with the crusades. In 14, 1447, starting with Pope Nicholas V, and then carried on by Pope Alexander, the doctrine of discovery and Catholic colonization took place. Uh, fortunately for the historical record, but uh, unfortunately for the papacy, uh, we have uh, a lift out of that doctrine of discovery for you to look at now. On the next screen, it says, this is from the Pope justly desiring that whatsoever concerns the integrity and spread of the faith for which Christ our God shed his blood shall flourish in the virtuous souls of the faithful, we grant to you by these present documents with our apostolic authority. Now remember, the Pope speaks as God. The Pope speaks as God. And that word that comes from God's mouth is inerrant and infallible. This is God speaking, according to Catholics everywhere. 
We grant to you by these present documents with our apostolic authority, full and free permission to invade, search out, capture, and subjugate the Saracens, Muslims, and pagans, and any other unbelievers and enemies of Christ, wherever they may be, as well as their kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property, and to reduce their persons into perpetual slavery, and to apply and appropriate and convert to the use and profit of yourself and your successors, the kings of Portugal, in perpetuity, the above-mentioned kingdoms, duchies, counties, principalities, and other property and possessions, and such like goods. All, of course, assuming that a handsome tithe of that is going to come right back to the Catholic Church. That is our written history. How many millions? How many millions have been slaughtered with a sword in one hand and a cross in the other? So, some of you might think, so glad I'm at Crosswalk, which is aligned with the American Baptist Church, which is Protestant, not Catholic, because we don't have any such blood on our hands, except we do. Because Britain and other Protestant nations got the same idea, except they improved on it. The improvement was, since the Pope wasn't giving permission, and in the UK, the Anglican Church which is run by the king, uh, was giving that permission. No dollars had to go to the Catholic Church. So they saved that 10% right off, the get, right off the bat. And they went with full vigor to the point where Great Britain became the largest colonizing nation in world history. How many people died, were enslaved with that kind of authority? So we continue on our timeline. Uh, that's the Reformation and the Protestant uh, colonization. Uh, we go into 1843. The United States is young, but we have our own rendition of it called Manifest Destiny. Now, we thought of ourselves as very special, and we are. The United States is the first to do our kind of government that the world has seen, and we still call it an experiment. We're still figuring out how to make this a more perfect or I would say a more mature uh, union. Let's hope we can accomplish that. I mean, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we just flat out deny that our past has a literally colored history, that we became strong enough economically because of slavery. We never would have had the economic strength to do what we did except on the backs of slaves. That came from Africa, with the help of Europeans and even other Africans. But it didn't just stop with importing people that we took from homelands. It also meant that the indigenous people who were here, we treated just like the colonizers. Took their land, enslaved them, offered the same four options, convert, get out of our way, be our subjects, or just die. That's our history, and we cannot ever forget it. Not that we dwell on it. I'm proud of our country. I love our country, but we are not worse for remembering who we've been. When we remember who we've been, it helps us not become that again and repeat history. <laughs> I'm not the first one who's thought of this. And so that's America. 
Uh, and it's a troubling deal. And we're still dealing with it, in my opinion, because we haven't really dealt with it. We told ourselves since emancipation happened through after the Civil War and because civil rights happened 70 years ago, that somehow, and we had a black president, for God's sake. So, of course, we've, we've nailed it. And yet we know statistically that we've barely begun to really deal with it. It's still with us. It's still with us. Brian McLaren, uh, he gives us this quote. Oh, um, I did mention in the 1900s, 50 million plus people die resisting colonization, trying to climb out of that colonization that got them there in the first place. Uh, 50 plus million worldwide died because of that. McLaren gives us this quote on the next slide. Wherever Christians have gone, we have brought a legacy of schools, hospitals, and other institutions to improve our quality of life and the lives of others. By the way, let me just pause there for a second, because that's always what comes after a statement of the injustices and the violence that we have committed. It's always excused with, oh, but look how much wonderful things we brought them. You know who else did that? The Roman Empire to Jesus' day. Stop whining, Jewish people. We gave you better roads. We've got you better health care, better trade, better commerce. Why don't you just be quiet for all the wonderful things we've done, or I'll kill you. That's how we've done it here. So we got to be careful with that, and, and uh, McLaren goes on. But make no mistake, we have also brought the fourfold ultimatum of convert, leave, submit, or die which is the unwritten contract of crusader colonial Christianity, past and present. It is still here. The violence is still embedded in our modern day faith. We still hold on to the wrath of God from the Old Testament, the hopeful wrath of the apocalypse in the New Testament. And I would say, as Richard Rohr would say, that people tend to see things as they are. Except for he emphasizes, people tend to see things as they are. This is still with us right now here in the United States. There's a phenomenon called Christian nationalism, which is hardly Christian. And it has as its game plan a very similar fourfold approach. It has got its own theological engine behind it. And part of the underpinnings of it is that while God loves Israel and will always love and cherish Israel and his Jewish nation, he loves the United States pretty much just as much. It's almost like we are a new Israel, this Christian nation. And therefore, we can keep on doing what we've always done. Now, you're not necessarily going to see. Sometimes you will see violence. You will see people bearing arms and willing to use them, willing to do horribly physically violent things. But more than that, pay attention to the other forms of violence, which are absolutely in front of us in spades. As we become more divided, as fear has grown more out of control, you will hear violent language and rhetoric. Just look for it. Open your eyes and realize that what we are hearing in no way sounds like Jesus speaking to his disciples about his Abba and how his Abba loves everybody.
to just remind us of uh, our room to grow and our imperfect union, we have another quote from Robert Jones, researcher and statistician. He says that white Christian churches, specifically, both Protestant and Catholic, have served as institutional spaces for the preservation and transmission of white supremacist attitudes. Statistically, the more racist attitudes a person holds, the more likely he or she is to identify as a white Christian. And McLaren asked the question, why? <laughs> it's not a question of do I stay Christian? Why would anybody consider this? If this is the data. So I asked the question, I wonder how Jesus handled this. In Jesus' context, what did he do with it? And so just a slide to remind you a little bit of Jesus' timeline and his failure and his success because he failed in one way. And our screen is not working for us. Okay, well, as that comes back, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. Remind you of this guy. He was a dirt poor peasant carpenter that lived in the sticks, the hillbilly village areas of Galilee in northern Israel. He knew it. He knew that everybody around him was made fun of by the big city folk in Jerusalem to the south where Judaism was centered and these glorious new Greek and Roman cities that have been built up not that far away from them. They grew up in the sticks and they were treated like morons. They were dirt poor. They were lucky to get a meal every day. Most were uneducated. Most Jewish people in the northern region were furious that the Roman Empire was there, and they were willing to do whatever it took to get them out. And the only thing they could figure was violent revolt, because that's just good human lizard brain behavior. That's the only thing we can think of. We just got to fight harder. We'll overwhelm them, they say, with their pitchforks and their clubs against the Roman Empire, the greatest military uh, that had ever really seen the light of day in that part of the world at that time. And so they did on occasion. A Messiah would jump up and say, God is with me and God will be with us, just like God was with Joshua. If only you will have faith and take arms and go for it. And time and time again, when they would rise up, Rome would beat them down, single out that Messiah and kill him publicly. Jesus has an experience somewhere around 30-ish years old. It's a profound experience. There's mystery around this, by the way, because we don't know anything from Jesus' childhood until his baptism. So I think somewhere in his journey, he had an experience of God which radically reshaped his whole worldview, refashioned his eyes, changed his heart and his mind all based on his experience of God, not as this wrathful God who can't wait to kill his enemies, but as loving Abba. And he comes out of this experience in a 40-day camping trip where he sorted it all out. And what manifests in him is love. What he speaks is love. And when it comes to dealing with Rome, and when it comes to dealing with aggressive leadership in Jerusalem on the part of the Jewish leadership, his statement to his, his people is not revolt, but do not be violent. 
choose nonviolent resistance. That's the only way it's going to get done for the long haul. And so his followers did the best they could to model that. In his stump speech, which he would travel around, and we know it as the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, Matthew versus Luke, uh, we would see him talking about different ways of being nonviolent to the crowd. So they would have a clue. How do, we, how do we help turn the tide on this thing without getting killed? Is there another solution here where we can enter as people of Abba who know we're loved and speak that kind of love to other people because it just might soften their eyes and help them see things differently? What would happen if everybody really believed that they were deeply loved by God and so was everybody else and the planet? How would we treat everyone and everything very differently? we would probably treat them with a lot more dignity and respect and maturity and love and grace. That's what happens when the lizard brain is not running the show. But Jesus did his best. He did create a community which continued to do this long after his death. But the majority of Jewish people either didn't get his message or didn't want his message. And around 70 AD, uh, these Jewish nationalists uh, took Rome took Rome to task, recaptured Jerusalem, which was the, the center of power for Rome in that region, and held on to it for a period of months. Rome surrounded it, waited them out, waited until they were literally starving, broke down the walls one after another, slaughtered whoever was inside, burned the entire city to the ground, wiped out the temple, wiped out where the sacrifices happened, left very little there just to remind people when they would walk by, this once was a special place. But Rome saw otherwise. Jesus failed in his mission in that regard. Judaism changed at that point, by the way. It changed from a Sadducee and Pharisean way of thinking, which required the temple and required temple leaders and required a physical sacrifice to get God's forgiveness to be meted out on his people. And it shifted to a rabbinical way. And you know what the rabbinical way was briefly? It was learn how to love God. Learn how to actually walk the talk of the way of God. That brings you salvation. That brings you wholeness. That brings you the experience of grace and forgiveness. Not some sacrifice of some animal somewhere. It changed the whole paradigm of Judaism because it had to. The Christians, by the way, they continued to meet as best they could in community, radically different from the cultures around them. And they included people that wouldn't have been at the same table together, which I expressed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, sinners and saints together, rich and poor together, they were creating the new divine commonwealth wherever they went. And it was catching on. The first two centuries of Christianity saw really significant growth numerically and geographically. It was going pretty good until Christianity got power centuries later. And as soon as we got power, we went right back to lizard brain and right back to wrathful thinking, colonization. God has given us this power and authority, so we might as well use it. We gave up on the deeper ways of love, gave up on the deeper ways of nonviolence, and just settled for the quick, quick, cheap, easy route of violence. But we can't forget what Jesus had to say. Again, Jesus was transformed by Abba's love. Jesus died bringing divine commonwealth, and Jesus' followers followed similarly to bring shalom. And I'm wondering if you will too.
There's a passage of scripture that I want to share with you, which is not on the screen at present. But luckily, I have a secret Bible phone. So part of Jesus' stump speech, Sermon on the Mount, this is right after he gives some very specific instruction on how to do nonviolent protesting. He says, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. When you love your enemies, when you pray for those who persecute you, then you will look like your daddy. Then you will look like your daddy. I was teaching kids yesterday on faith stuff, and most of it was over their head, and they were filled up on pizza and sugar, so I don't know how much was caught anyhow. But anyway, I kind of asked them, you know, how many of you have heard that you kind of look like your parents? And None of them paid attention to that either. So we had to remind them, well, you, you guys kind of look like CJ and Janet <laughs> because you're their kids. People can recognize you that way. What Jesus is saying here is when you do this loving of enemies and praying for those who persecute you, you start to look like dad. That's mind-blowing. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do, do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be mature, even as your father, your Abba, your daddy in heaven is mature. Love is the way. Love is the way. Love is bigger. It is stronger than that which we are up against. And we hate it because it's not easy. Now, I've been teaching this stuff for a very long time. Uh, I was really got my eyes open to this in my doctoral work, which I wrapped up about 17 years ago. And you haven't been able to shut me up about it since. So this is not new information around crosswalk. And over all of those years, whenever I talk about this radical love of God, I always get the same pushback of we need a violent God. We need a wrathful God. We need a God that's going to be that judge and take care of business. And I would just submit to you uh, that maybe through the lens of Jesus, that's not correct. And so then sometimes I hear like, well, love, I mean, come on. That's just unrealistic. That's not real world stuff. Because we live in a violent world that needs to be treated with violence because that's the world that we live in. Love is soft. Love's a pushover. Love's a doormat. That's just not going to work. And what I would submit to you is that your definition of love needs to be expanded. Because the love of God is no pushover. The love of God is hung in there with me. When with my mouth, my emotions, my body, I have defied God. And God's love chose to stay with me in my darkest of times, calling me home, calling me, wooing me back, not giving me a spanking, not beating over my head, uh, God's truth, God knows 
Life will do that on its own. Life catches up. There's a passage in scripture that says, nobody essentially says, nobody gets away with any sin. God will not be mocked, right? Because it catches up with us. Anybody who we see that, are, that is sinning flagrantly that we can't stand, don't worry about it. You don't know the untold misery that probably led to that behavior. And you don't know the misery that is ahead of them. And that has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with the way of Jesus, which leads to life and truth and well-being for everybody. The way of God, the love of God is no wimp. The way of God is strong, strong enough to hang in there, even when it's dark and hard. Strong enough to even speak to those, whisper to those who want war in the world. There's no wimp. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and remind yourself of what love looks like. And you'll find yourself realizing that we struggle to do it well. Because love keeps no record of wrongs. But we love to nurse a grudge, don't we? Love is no wimp. Now, when you hear this, and maybe when Jesus said this the first time, I am sure that people reacted to it equally violently. In fact, at one time when he kind of gave this line that Lauren read earlier, he said, pick up your cross and follow me. He had a megachurch for five minutes. People were really excited to see the show. And as soon as he said that, he says, look, my way, this way of God has to be primary for this thing to work. And most of the people just walked away. I think that is still true today. It is so much easier in our world to be fear mongers. And we kind of want that. It makes us feel secure. And so we look for politicians that are going to have tough talk and really bring down the hammer and puff up chests and all that. We look for world leaders. And we, we see world leaders like Putin who do crazy things. We're like, we need a leader that's even tougher than that. And we as Christians even find ourselves sucked into all of that. But is that the way of Jesus? No, it's not. The way of Jesus is counterintuitive and countercultural, and we are invited into that way. Who else, who else but the people who are following that way of God can help the world not destroy itself? Who but us to say, hey, <laughs> the tough talk isn't going to get us anywhere. The tough talk is violent talk, and violence is incompatible with the way of God, with the way of shalom. Let's see what we can do here. By the way, just one caveat, and then, uh, then we'll close things out. Some of you are in extremely challenging situations, more than most. Uh, you may be in a, in a relationship where there's abuse. Uh, you may be in a relationship with somebody who is addicted to alcohol or drugs, uh, and everything in you, when you hear me talk about love, it's triggering something in you, maybe quite literally to use that term very technically, is, is causing you to get anxious because you're thinking about, oh, man, I'm being, I guess I got to go take another hit. I got to go back into the abusive situation. I have, to let, I have to let that person back into the house that I just told them that they couldn't stay here anymore because love says, okay, I'm going to love you through thick and thin. And what I want to tell you is if you're in that situation, you need counsel. You need counsel to help you sort it out. Because that ultimately, that staying in and allowing yourself to be abused isn't love. 
the law that Jesus said is to love your neighbor as yourself. To love yourself is to say no to abuse of all kinds. And so if you need help finding somebody who can help you through that and navigate that way, which is extremely challenging because love is tough. And sometimes tough love is the only thing that will really work. Let's dispense with the idea that love somehow means easy. Like it's some kind of cop-out. Like it's letting people off the hook because that's not what the love of God does. The love of God that we are called to is to bring deep transformation wherever we go. To make it a place where the divine commonwealth really does take root. Where more and more people see themselves as loved by this God we call daddy slash mommy who loves us in a maturity that we can't even fathom, but it is so wonderfully transformative and strengthening. And we realize that every single person we meet is just the same. That is revolutionary without the violence. That changes the world, or at least keeps it from killing itself for a very long time. That is the way of Jesus that we are invited to follow. Let's pray together. What's messing with you today, congregation? How is God speaking to you today? What's bubbling up? Maybe today, maybe today you've been aware of some violence that you have allowed into your life. Maybe the violence you engage in is physical and you need to stop. Maybe the violence is emotional. Maybe it's with your tongue and how you inflict pain on others or into the world. Maybe it's an attitude of violence that you carry with you. Maybe today God is calling you deeper into true maturity, into love. Can you hear the whisper, the woo of God saying, that's literally a dead end, that there is no argument significant enough in the world for you to die on that hill, that it's going to kill you, God, I, I confess this is me. Guilty. I'm trying to practice as much as I'm preaching. God, help me. Help me to be more like Jesus. Maybe, friends, the thing that you needed to hear today and just be reminded of and let it do its deep work in you is that you really, 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 really are loved. That maybe you've heard from voices 
discerned from actions of others that you are not worthy of love. Maybe you've been abused in some ways and it has shaken you to your core to the point where you can't feel good about yourself. You have no self-esteem because it has been ripped away from you on purpose through violence. May you hear. May you hear that you are deeply and profoundly loved, cherished, valued, precious in God's sight. That this God would do anything to help you build your life on that. May it start to heal your wounds. Give you strength to trust again. Guide you into new behaviors. And find yourself into new life that leads to life and life and life. God, I pray for Crosswalk, that we will be a place that willfully chooses love. That when faced with the temptation toward violence in any form, we will choose love. May we be known more and more as a place where the Spirit of God rules the day with love. And may your love emanate out from this place. May your spirit flow through us as we move into the community and may more and more people know that they are loved because we have found it together here and we figured out how to model it and live in it and love it together. To that end, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for coming today. I hope you had a good experience. Get out there and be shalom in the world with shalom, and we'll see you back next week.